What's up, Charleston? This is uh, the Healthy Charleston Podcast, uh, hosted by yours truly, Dane Gifford, Nate Jones, and uh, Matt Shiver. Today, Eve is on the road, headed out of town. Um, I'm not sure if he's running away from a hurricane or if he's going to do some work somewhere else. But uh, either way, the three of us are here. Uh, We're going to talk about all sorts of health information and misinformation and see if we can't clear up some misconceptions. But um, we also wanted to introduce you for the first time to uh, our friend Matt Shiver. And uh, so we're going to jump right in there and uh, let him fill us in. So Matt, tell us a little bit about yourself, your backstory, and, uh, you know, I guess your role here with Made to Move. Cool. Thanks for having me on. So I'm originally from the Charleston area. I grew up in Mount Pleasant. I went to school at Christ Our King. I went down the Bishop England track. And after finishing high school, I went to Appalachian State. There I studied undergrad exercise science and minored in nutrition. And then when I finished up there, I decided to go to PT school where I went to Duke University. And then when deciding like where I'd go after that, I started reaching out to people and I found that there was this awesome place called Made to Move. Um, back at my hometown. And after like doing some research and talking to Eve, I definitely, I decided to pair up the team and go from there. So I just moved back here in May and paired up the team and just learn as much as I can. So Matt, would you refer to yourself as like Dr. Matt or Dr. Shiver? Like, Mm. which do you, or Dr. Matt Shiver? DM. DM. Uh, you call me Dr. Matt. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, there it is. I like that. It's, it yeah, just rings yeah. well. Right? It flows off the tongue. <laughs> For sure. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, definitely going to d- dive into uh, a lot of things here today. Um, I want to continue talking about Matt and, uh, you know, kind of highlighting some of his past and, and present uh, endeavors. So uh, I know that uh, you spent some time, you know, you're passionate about Olympic lifting. Uh, you just started, right, mm-hmm. again with uh, a new cycle. Tell us about that. Tell us about your passion with Olympic weightlifting and then what you're doing right now. Sure. So when I was at Appalachian, I got into CrossFit. Actually, I got into CrossFit when I was at Bishop England. And like like, during football season, I started getting into CrossFit. I'd be doing kipping pull-ups on the rig and just the rig wasn't like cement in the ground. So it was just shaking like (laughs) boom, boom. But um, I I found when I got to Appalachian and actually joined a CrossFit gym that one of my weak points was weightlifting or just my overall strength. So I decided – Let's give the next like 12 weeks to get good at weightlifting. It's like, oh yeah, but then this 12 weeks, I'll snatch 225. I'll clean and jerk 300 pounds, like starting at, I don't know, maybe uh, 165 snatch or something like yeah. that. Not, you know, your expectations are so high. And then um, I've just fell in love with the movement pattern and I, and I enjoyed like that feeling of going into the gym every day and being able to see like the numbers slowly increase. And I like that consistency more than I liked um, the CrossFit. Of it, you would see some some weeks and some months you'd have a lot of progress in like your aerobic capacity, but then other months your strength would drop. So, but I like just seeing my strength and my my stuff just slowly go up and up and up. So I got involved in uh, weightlifting when I was at Appalachian, and I helped help my university create like a academic club or like a competitive club. And, um, I did that, hosted some weightlifting meets. Then when I moved to Durham, I emailed all the CrossFit gyms in the area. I was like, Hey, I just want to keep continuing my passion as I'm studying in school. 
So I paired up with Bull City CrossFit in Durham, North Carolina as their weightlifting coach. So me and another physical therapy student, three days a week work with CrossFit athletes or just anybody who wants to get strong and improve their movement patterns. So it was an uh, environment for me, one, to use a lot of my PT knowledge and then pair it with my love for strength conditioning and weightlifting. So I did that for about a year. And then as I started to get more involved with weightlifting, I went to the Arnold, started meeting coaches. Um, I met up with Travis Mash and I paired with him. So I was one of his coaches for two years and I just finished working with him in April as I decided to move back home and kind of start doing my own thing and working with Made to Move. Um, but for that two year period, I had a lot of experience working with all different types of people. A lot of people, it was really challenging, but it was a good experience to try to work with people who are completely new to weightlifting and do it remotely. It's, it's so different, but, um, you, you learn so much about like what's important with communication and you learn what's important with just coaching in general. Um, so yeah, that's been, that's been my, my, I guess my journey with weightlifting. And I'm currently, I've been out of weightlifting training for a while. And I'm just now hopping back into it so I can compete in a competition in November. And then I'll, that will qualify me for one of the American Open Series in Winston-Salem in June uh, this following year in 2020. And uh, after that, we'll kind of see where, where I go. But I'm excited to be back under the bar and feeling pretty good. Yeah, definitely. The, uh, the resume is definitely there when it comes to the Olympic lifting. It's, it must have been nice kind of working with, uh, I don't know, I would call him a legend, but, uh, I mean, yeah, Travis Mash Mash. is a pretty strong dude, right? Yeah. He was, uh, he was at a competition I did once. We were doing like a super total. So it was like, um, deadlift, squat, strict overhead press, and then clean and jerk and snatch. I didn't know how to do either of those, but I was like warming (laughs) up for my squat. It was the day after a strongman competition up in Raleigh. I was warming up and he was there throw me out for my squat and he looked over and he was like, you're a strong squatter. I was like, I'm not, but okay. I'm going to squat PR. So like yeah. that, that magic. Yeah. That's all uh, it took, right? Just yeah. the, the words of uh, Travis Mash yeah. to PR your squat. No, for sure. I mean, like I, there were so many times, the biggest thing I learned probably from him is like how the importance of environment. Like you can follow the best program and have all your percentages like calculated to what they should be optimally. But like, in the end, if you're surrounded by a group of people that just want to get better and stronger, like you're going to get strong. And like every time I went to the gym and this is, this is, this is the same for pretty much anybody who goes there the first time is you're good at PR. Yeah. Like something. And, and just, it's like, man, this like gravity just feels way lighter here. I don't know right, what it is, right. but every, every lifter that I've taken there has PR'd. I PR'd. I think I PR'd my snatch by like six kilos the first time I went there, which is pretty absurd for a weightlifter that's a lot <laughs> yeah, and they looked years. good so it was uh yeah it's a great, great experience overall yeah I, he's a he's amazing too i i might be mistaken here but I'm, I'm i'm sure that maybe i'm not the uh he had a hip replacement right yeah and uh i remember looking at like uh, some instagram video and he was like 14 weeks out of a hip replacement and he was squatting like I don't know, front squatting like 400 pounds or something, just ridiculous. And it just, it really, uh, I don't know, that was one of the things where it really hit home to me. I mean, I've listened to Nate talk about, you know, pain and, you know, the body's recovery and like all these different things. And then seeing that video, it just almost made everything click right then and there. Just seeing like 14 weeks, I watched my mom have a hip replacement. You know, I've watched other, you know, within the industry having hip replacements and people aren't even, you know, sometimes wanting to get out of bed at 14 weeks. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm exaggerating, but still mm-hmm. here he is squatting 400 pounds and it's purely about, 
capacity. Ed Cohen did it too. He had a bilateral hip replacement and was squatting like 600 pounds a few months later. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. They started off probably doing gobble squats in a trapeze. Yeah. He was doing gobble squats. He was doing like high, just like to a box, high, high box squats. And then as long as he's able to tolerate it, there's nothing that says like you can or can't do that. Mm -hmm. Right. So like he was able to progress smart and maybe he pushed it a little too much, but like he still felt good. And like, he didn't increase his, like, he didn't get re-injured or anything like that, right? right? So it was really up to his capacity and, like, what he could tolerate. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think that's, like, an important part. Like, we were talking with the ACL person yesterday, um, but, like, that idea of, you you mentioned that maybe he pushed a little bit too hard or maybe he didn't. He felt mm-hmm. good, so he kept going, and I think that that's huge. I mean, like, I don't know. Like, what is too far? I don't know. Yeah, I guess if you hurt yourself, you know. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I guess if you're managing your own recovery, then that's kind yeah. of okay. But like from a professional standpoint, like when we're looking at a patient, what like I think it's less about finding that limit and more about doing like a smart progression. Like don't don't jump in volume, don't go crazy. Start at a pretty easy level and then progress from there in a smart manner and really solid chance you're never going to accidentally push too far. It's it's going to be when you like if you went from like high squatting body weight to a box squat and then immediately front squatted 400 pounds the next week. That's, that's a problem. Right. But we'll adapt to almost anything. Like obviously a hip replacement doesn't adapt, but it's a pretty strong piece of equipment. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Obviously since he's squatting that much with it. Yeah. Um, so I think it's just like, it's more about the progression than being like, what is the limit of, of this adaptation? I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's just one thing I've, I learned from you and I've been, you know, a lot of my patients, Nate is, um, is like asking the question of like, is this tolerable? Right. Mm-hmm. So like, is yeah. this tolerable to a patient? And it's either yes or no. Instead of like, I think when I started and a lot of like experience I had in the past was like, Hey, rate your pain on a scale of zero to 10. And it's like, Oh, it's gotta be within a certain level. And then like, if it's mm-hmm. not there, then we gotta like, but the more you ask questions about like zero out of 10, the more they're focusing on that sensation of pain instead of, mm-hmm. or whatever it may pain, tightness, discomfort, instead of, Yes or no, this is tolerable. And everybody hates the zero to 10 question. Like it doesn't, it doesn't click for like 75% of people. Um, Like I don't, you know, I don't really get it either. And it's, you know, this is our job. So yeah, like five, six. I think the only thing that helps us maybe is a certain amount of training age, right? Like as Mm -hmm. you put your body through more and more rigorous, I guess, stress, you start to now comprehend where you are on that scale. But Mm -hmm. I mean, if you're talking about a youth athlete coming in after surgery or, you know, uh, you know, even somebody that it's just not been in training for the last decade, like they, Mm -hmm. they might not have that understanding of where they are on that sliding scale of, of zero to 10 because it's super subjective. Yeah. So you also did a bodybuilding show, right? (laughs) You talked about it on Mason's podcast, but it was, it was probably the most interesting thing. One yeah. of the most interesting things I've heard. <laughs> the only thing interesting yeah. about you, man. Like you did, I mean, you did like pre and post hormone levels, and, right? Yeah. All that stuff. Yeah. So really cool. Yeah. So I uh, did. So yeah, I'm, I'm just into drink, drink sports in general. And I'll probably do a bunch more. Maybe with Strongman one day. Yeah. 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 <laughs> so yeah, I, I originally, what was that good? Good. Good. Okay. So yeah, I originally started um, training at like a typical you know, global gym. I had a personal trainer and everything and he was a bodybuilder himself and he kind of got me into, he got me doing my first overhead squat. So I originally started doing CrossFit cause I was like, I want to get better at football. So I started doing the CrossFit stuff and I found out my upper capacity got better. Awesome. But I still have this calling of like, yo, like it's fun and it looks awesome to just get as shredded as possible <laughs> and just see what you can do. And 
I was like, man, I, I had I had six to eight months before I started PT school where I was I was able to train. I'm like, let's go ahead and just do this, like just for the experience. Like I didn't, mm-hmm. I was coming from a weightlifting background. If you know anything about weightlifters, like except for for like cloak off and like yeah. Lu Jiaojun, like everybody is not necessarily like ripped. Like mm-hmm. most of the weightlifters, they kind of look like they lift, but like not so much. Smoke like they have cigarettes. big glutes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Smoke some cigarettes, like Tony Shinkle. But like, yeah, they've got like big legs, big glutes, uh, a decent back, but their arms are kind of like scrawny because you don't use them like you're using your legs. So, but either way, I was like, you know what? I'm doing this. This is going to be fun. So for six to eight months, like before I started school, um, I planned out a show with my, one of my best friends and roommates in college. And we both went through that training together and, you know, it was, it was, it was very, very fun, but it, 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 you you learn so much about your body. It's like to learn how much food you can really survive off of one. And then like, also like <laughs> how much food you really do eat during the day, during the day. And like, I've, I've, I had a history before that of tracking my macros, tracking all my food and everything, but like actually going like that low, I've never gone. And then it makes you look at, man, like just one big burrito is like, it's like what I'm eating for all of my meals or like two meal or like two days worth of meals. Like it's just, it's crazy. And it changes your relationship with food. Um, for the good and for bad at the same time, like you definitely see other people and you're like, how are they putting that in their body? Like you're drinking a whole soda. Like I can't even, (laughs) I have no room for that. You know what I mean? So like definitely I learned a lot from it, but I definitely, during that process, like you're so into it that it's hard to relate to a bunch of other people. And like mentioned, like Nate mentioned too, it was like, I did do some um, blood testing just to kind of see like where all my hormones went and like everything before and after the show and before the show is relatively normal normal testosterone uh slightly elevated liver enzymes which is pretty normal for uh, strength training in general and then post-show my testosterone was in like the 200 250 range i think like normal for a healthy male is like 454 something in the 400 range like 1200 range but i was in like the 250 right after the show no sex drive no energy I was just chicken breast and broccoli. I mean, like, they just, they just, I mean, that was all. And then when you finish a show, you, you have the same relationship with food that you've just developed and like ingrained in yourself for that, that long period of time. And to get out of that, it's, it's extremely challenging. So, um, yeah, I continued to, it took me probably a good two months, so two to three months to get my testosterone back up to like normal levels. My liver enzymes before they were slightly elevated and then, after the show, they were very, very elevated. Well, I, that's what the doctor said. I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't know them very, very well, but like, I wasn't as concerned. But like, the doctor seemed really concerned. I'm like, oh man, <laughs> like, well, like I know they're somewhat elevated because right. I'm some a resistance trained athlete, and this are, yeah. can be normal. But they were a little bit higher, uh, and he seemed concerned. And then I went to another doctor, and she was concerned. I'm like, oh my gosh, like, my, I just my, myself. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> my liver. So, uh, but uh, yeah, I fit. A lot of that just goes like I think towards the end of it, I was very it was very uh, traditional bodybuilding diet of eating like 400 grams of protein of just chicken and that's like a lot. Yeah. yeah, how much chicken is that? That's like so much protein. That's like those, eight or nine uh, ounces, eight or nine ounces of chicken five to six times a day plus a whey protein shake. And then the only other thing I'd eat would be like a green vegetable. So you're like protein sparing modified fasting at the end there. Like that's like 1600 calories of just protein every day. Yeah. Yeah. 
It was it was interesting. I mean, Ew. the fat was like minimal. It was like at the bottom. It got to be like forty grams at max, which is so low. Yeah, that's and then Carbs. It was like three days on at fifty grams and three days off at nothing. <laughs> so it's just like the trace amount you get from vegetables. Um, but I think that was yeah. Looking back at it now and like being a little bit more educated on the process of it, reading a good amount more nutrition books that are that have gone like people who have done that process. I definitely would have changed a lot about like new training, nutrition, like cardio. Like you did, you know, sixty minutes of cardio and just like walking a slow, steady incline forever. And like it, it was fun. I, I learned a ton from that whole experience, and like I wouldn't trade it for anything. But if somebody was like, "Hey, I really want to do this," I'd be like, "Look, these are." the things that you're going to be presented with and like that you're going to go through. And if you're okay with that, fine, go for it. But like, know that you're going to have an eating disorder, (laughs) know that you're going to have a fluctuation in your hormone levels, energy levels, and that it definitely is going to cause some long-term relationship with food issues that can definitely be overcome. But every single time I still, I mean, I still track my food. I've been doing it for a long time, but I'll go through a phase where I don't track it and then I kind of feel guilty and hop back on tracking again. So I know it's been, shoot, when was that? That was 2012, no, 26, 2016. So I'm at like three, yeah, four, three to four year mark. And I still see some things like, yeah, that right. are still, still there. You know? <clears throat> what about like emotionally? So like, uh, as you were coming to the end there, like I imagine, we're, like, oh, like, like I, I imagine you're a real pleasure to be around and, uh, yeah, I, I was just like, I think I was just really short. Like, I just didn't like put up with much, right? Because it was like, especially with other people and their relationship with their body, food, and training. So, like, if somebody was just like walking around, like, wasn't training, eating like crap, like, I just was like almost mad at them. I was like, <laughs> how could you? <laughs> like, I'm doing all of this, and then you're not doing anything. Like, what are you doing with your life? Like, but like, that's because I was so into it, yeah, right? Yes. Yeah. So, like, that was that was that was a, a big challenge for me, and then um, emotionally too. When you're in that, like all you want to do is I just want to get bigger. Like how can I get bigger? So like mm-hmm. I started reading a bunch of eBooks on performance enhancing drugs. Oh yeah, like supplementation. Like how can I get like that guy who was on stage like huge, right? But I mean, I never end up doing any of that stuff, but you, if you're around it enough, like it's just, it's very tempting. And luckily I, you know, I'm smart about it. And like, I talked to people about like what I was looking into and researching, but like, you definitely had that temptation of like, I want to do anything possible to be at that next level. Yeah, no, scary. absolutely. It's, like it's I, scary. Yeah, it, <laughs> yeah. Is, it is scary for sure. Now, you, I mean, you've got similar, not similar to that, but like competing a strong man, you're mm-hmm. kind of around people like that too, right? Like, I mean, you are kind yeah. of at a higher level for your weight and size, uh, but like there's definitely <laughs> people out there that are, are, you're probably looking at going, man, like, yeah, there's, how do there's I like guys in my weight class repping out 600 pound dead. Like I just hit a 610 and I was like, yeah, it was awesome. And you'd get on Instagram and there's a guy like weighs in it, like walking around at under 180, doesn't even have to like weigh in necessarily or cut weight. And he just is repping out 600 pounds, like casual, like touch and go, um, for three or four reps. It's like, there's just some people in this. And like, I don't necessarily think that's performance enhancing drugs, especially in, in, uh, smaller weight classes. So like I compete either one under 175 or under 181. Um, and you probably get some benefit from it, but I also think at 
when there's a real specific weight limit like that, it probably doesn't help as much as it would in like a higher weight class. So like going out there, you know, there might be a guy that's my height, five foot six in the under 231 class, you know, and then like, he's probably gaining some benefit from that. Like I, I, I can't even imagine trying to get that big. Right. So, um, or like if you don't have a weight limit, then you're going to be able to put on and hold a whole lot more muscle. Right. Um, but I think, I would like to believe, and maybe this is a little bit naive, but like you can be at the highest levels in at least these smaller weight classes without having to resort to stuff like that. Yeah. Um, just with like yeah. genetic gifts and hard training and like smart, smart competing and programming basically. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Could be wrong, but I feel like that's <laughs> at least in, this, in the smaller ones, I think it's possible. So, yeah. yeah. Um, is, so a question just because like from mm-hmm. the, the experience I had with bodybuilding, they have different federations that like, and, and for powerlifting too, mm-hmm. you have you have drug tested federations and you have those that don't drug test. Oh, yeah. Strongman doesn't test it. Strongman, <laughs> strongman. I love strongman because <laughs> it's like the culture and this is going to sound really bad, but it's, it's amazing. I, it, it allows for like creativity. The culture is like cheat as hard as you can until they make a rule against it. Right. So like, so my favorite example is like, there's a, a rule against like pressing something off of your head. You know, so like people would used to like put the log on top of their head and then like press it from their head. And like someone probably got hurt at some right. point doing that. And so now there's a rule against it. But it's like there's this unspoken rule of like you don't ask the promoter at the beginning if you're allowed to use stuff. You just do it. And then once once you do it, like it's, it's done. He's not going to like disqualify you unless he specifically says it's against the rules. And so I'm sure promoters hate it. Like it's super annoying to have to think of every single eventuality. But like. I don't know. So like I'll put on, I'll put on like two pairs of elbow sleeves to press and like, you know, oh stuff God. like that. And like, yeah. Um, and they just don't care. So like steroids are fully along with that, right? Like nobody, mm-hmm. nobody in strongman cares. And it's not generally, you know, the people that do do it and the people that don't do it, there's no judgment either way. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, just go for it, man. If you're that dedicated that you're willing to maybe sacrifice some of your health and like possibly longevity, mm-hmm. um, just, you know, go for it. It's fine. Um, so, and I don't think, especially in something like that. So obviously it's illegal in the U S right. So like steroids are illegal to yeah. use their schedule four, three, whatever that know. is. They're, they're fairly illegal. <laughs> yeah. You get in a lot of trouble. Um, but in the competitions in which there's no rules against them, I don't really see an ethical issue with, with the use of that. Like it's, yeah. it's someone only damaging themselves. Right. And so if they, <clears throat> if they want to do that, that's fine. I don't see it as much, that much different than like, you know, like you damaged yourself fairly a fairly good amount doing the bodybuilding show. Like you came back from it for sure. But like, yeah, that's, so if you're, if you're just doing something that only hurts yourself and there's no rules against it in the sport, then like, you know, go for it. It's cool. Um, it's just a personal choice at that point. I think. So CrossFit's a little bit further on the, they're evil. Don't do it. And, and again, there's rules against it in the competition. So like people that do use it in a competition where there's really get rules against it are, not good people i think like yeah. they they suck um they're ruining the experience for everyone else have you guys seen so the, there's two documentaries on netflix one is screwball i haven't seen that one yet. uh that one's pretty new and that talks about that talks about it in baseball and like mm-hmm. the athletes that did use it and how they're using it it's it's it was interesting i watched this week. yeah good documentary and then and icarus yeah i've icarus seen that one yeah good. yeah crazy like hey man it's deep man yeah it's deep I mean, especially when you're talking about something like the, uh, like, you know, whatever it's, whether it's the Olympics or like that yeah. high level, like, like the more money, the more. Yeah. When there's motivation to do it, people are going to figure out ways to do it. Yeah. Um, yeah. and it's, and, and it sucks if there's rules against it. Like those people suck now. Right. right. Like, yeah. When you talk about the Olympics and we talk about national pride and I mean, just take a look mm-hmm. around 
America and like, you know, how important is national pride to people? Like, yeah, you, yeah. you can see where, uh, you know, people like coaches, athletes, whoever, like can get involved with that, like idea that like, we don't have a choice, but to succeed. Yeah. And there's, you know, if you get on any message board on the internet or you look on anything talking about anybody's performance, any sort of CrossFitter thing, everyone's like, yeah, everyone that's elite, all elite yeah. athletes are on steroids. Right. It makes me judge me nuts. I know. <laughs> they're not like, I mean, probably some of them are, yeah, right? Of course. Um, some sports more than other, others for sure. But even then, if you're, if you're, at a yeah. cert, you have to keep it such a low dose if you're yeah. a tested federation that it's not, I mean, it's going to give you benefit for sure. Mm. Mental focus, clarity and stuff. But like, it's, you can't do like superhuman, like optimal levels that yeah. it's going to stick in your system for a long period of time. Yeah. You know? There's also like, you know, just taking CrossFit as an example again. So like, could Matt Fraser and Tia Claire Toomey be using? Yeah. But Tia Claire Toomey has competed in the Olympics. She competes in the Commonwealth games. She competes in a lot of international weightlifting competitions and she does the CrossFit games, gets tested out of competition for both those things. Right. Like how would she know? You know, yeah. Yeah. like maybe you can have the conspiracy theory of like, Oh, Dave Castro is like, not testing yeah. the top athletes or warning them in advance, but so, the Olympics isn't going to do that. The right. Olympics wants to catch you. And so, and they're like, Matt Fraser kind of the same, right? Like he competed in his younger years in junior weightlifting, um, was tested like every week, you know? And it's still like, he doesn't compete in weightlifting now, but like you can, yeah. I feel like they want to catch him if he's using it. Right. And so yeah. like solid chance they're not, especially because if you look at the actual weights they're lifting, like, you know, a 380 pound clean is really, really impressive. Yeah. People in his weight class in the Olympics are doing like 450, 500, right? Yeah. So it's not – his performance isn't absurd. Like it's way better than everyone else. But there's a solid chance. I don't think you can just say like, yes, he's definitely using just from his performance or the way he looks. Like could he be? Maybe. Sure. Is he? We don't know. I think there's a chance he's not. So Yeah, I don't think he is. Yeah, I don't think he is. Yeah. I don't think so. I, I don't know what the motivation yeah. would be at this point. You Money, know, like, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Um. No, this is, a, this is an interesting discussion, you know, like it's, uh, I've always been like one of those people that also wants to know what the human body is capable of, right. like yeah. just purely like, and I don't think like not from the health and benefit of anybody, but just more or less just curiosity of like, what, you know, can we break the, mm -hmm. the, the, the two hour marathon or can we, you know, like, can we accomplish what task with or without, you know, some, yeah. some supplementation, you know, like do I think it should involve money or anything else? Not necessarily, right. but I want to know, I want to know how fast mm. somebody can run a 40 or how fast somebody can run. Yeah. A, just have the drug know, Olympics. Or, right. Yeah. And some, <laughs> like in some form or fashion, just to know, but at the same time, I don't ever want to like say that, like, yeah. you know, I don't want to put anybody's health second to like yeah. figuring out that's kind of like, you know, just running bad studies. I mean, that's why we yeah. don't just do all kinds of weird stuff because yeah. it's, it's yeah. ethically probably not the right thing right. to do. Mm. Like, yeah. But, you know, I mean, I might sign up for one of those, uh, studies, <laughs> yeah. one of those studies to just see how far you could push. Yeah. 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 I've also always said that, like, you have to have everything else in place, too. Like, the right. discipline, the, the nutrition, the sleep, the, the, yeah. the regiment, all in place yeah. on top of that. Because if not, you're just, yeah. you know, it's just all garbage. I mean, you're not going to look like Phil Heath <laughs> when you start taking steroids. No. Like, yeah. Phil Heath has the training. The reason is the, the only one. You know, right. Genetics. Genetics. On top of it. It's not going to yeah. blow you up like a bodybuilder. Consistency. I mean, yeah. all of it's the well, Lance Armstrong was on testosterone. Like, did he look jacked? No, his recovery <laughs> no. was on point. Yeah. It matched the training stimulus that mm -hmm. he was providing, right? Yeah, for yep. sure. The, um, yeah, so uh, I guess kind of circling back, going back to Matt, like, 
you know, kicking off maybe another discussion, how do you define fitness or health? Like what, like, what is that to you? Like, how do you, you know, in talking to people that you always talk to in public, patients, friends, family, like what's your definition yeah, of health like, and or fitness? That's a great question. I feel like it's, it's being able to live the lifestyle that you want to live without limitations. So like for some people, maybe fitness is just going up and like doing a hike, like, right. Like being able to walk around like nature be with their significant other and just enjoy their body, right? While, like, for some other people, it may be, like, I want to be amazing at squatting or deadlifting or running or biking. But I think it's just being able to use your body however way you want to intend to use it. I, I can't I like disagree it. at all. Like, I uh, yep. I kind of – whenever I think about it, it's like living your, your best life, right? Like, it, if I can't do the things I want to do – then that is how I know that like my health is maybe not where I need it to be. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for everybody that's different, some people just want to walk or get off the toilet themselves. Other people want to, yeah. you know, compete. Yeah. So and I think it's important too, as like a healthcare provider or just to anybody in general, just to, to understand that like, you're not going, your lifestyle, you can't push on somebody else. Like if you really want your significant other to be really into fitness or whatever that is to you, like you have to meet them where they are and where mm-hmm. they want to be and help them achieve that. So it's like, even for PT, sometimes we have like, everybody should squat, bitch, down on stress. Like, <laughs> you know, but, um, in reality, it's just, it's helping them reach their goals. Yeah, definitely. No, I think that's a great, uh, great, great way to define it. So uh, we're going to take a quick break real quick, and uh, we got to do something. Uh, Matt forgot to charge the uh, the computer here, so we're going to God, take, a, take a quick break, come back, and we're going to talk all things fatigue. FMG. All right, and we're back. So just finished up, you know, introducing Matt, talking bodybuilding, strongman, steroids, uh what is health and fitness? Um, but now we want to kind of switch gears completely. Not steroids. Not steroids. Right, not steroids. Yeah. yeah, let's keep that in a different discussion. <laughs> uh, but now we wanted to kind of dive into fatigue. Um, fatigue, I guess, probably has a lot of different definitions and a lot of different, uh, you know, aspects within each definition. But uh, I'm going to go ahead and let Nate kind of maybe introduce this topic, and then we can we can discuss in more detail. So. All right, so we're going to do a real brief overview of uh, exercise physiology going into this. So mm. if it gets too much, gets too nerdy, just like you guys yell at me, I, um, I, tend to, I tend to go off. So first, let's kind of define fatigue. So there are a bunch of different de- definitions of fatigue. I like the definition of fatigue being task failure. So um, there's a really cool paper looking at like peripheral mechanisms and all these kind of different types of fatigue you can experience and central mechanisms. They really liked it as task failure, and I think that makes the most sense. So when you're doing a task, fatigue is when you can no longer complete the task as as you were trying to do, basically, right? So we're going to, before we get too much into it, we're going to talk a little bit about how muscle contraction happens, a really high-level overview of it, right? So basically what happens, there's parts of your brain that plan out a movement. These parts of your brain talk to other parts of your brain that then refine it and decide to send it down to your muscles. So they kind of send these, what's what are called action potentials along your motor neurons. So these nerves that lead to muscles and the motor neuron plus a muscle makes up a motor unit, just in case I accidentally say that later. And like, we, I haven't introduced the concept. So anyway, so basically this electrical impulse travels down these motor neurons. Um, it's called an action potential. It goes to the end of that neuron. There's a little um, junction where the neuron meets up with the muscle. Um, that electrical potential, 
Um, there's some neurotransmitters that are released. They cross over and they create another electrical potential along the outside of that muscle fiber, along the plasma membrane. So this electrical potential in the muscle cell now, along what's called the sarcolemma, the plasma membrane of the cell, travels down. It goes in these things called T-tubules, um, goes to a little like kind of miniature organ called an organelle inside of the cell um, called the sarcoplasmic reticulum. The sarcoplasmic reticulum releases calcium. This will be important later. That's what I'm talking about it. Um <laughs> releases calcium, which binds there. And so on the inside of the muscle, there's these like two lines of proteins basically, right? So a thick rope and a thin rope called myosin and actin. Um, myosin grabs onto actin with these little like golf, golf club shaped heads and it pulls on it. And that's what makes the muscle shorten. So it has to do that over and over and over and over in order to make the muscle shorten. So myosin can't grab onto actin um, if there's no calcium because there's a little like kind of cover called troponin linked to tropomyosin that is covering this and interfering with that, that grabbing on action, right? So calcium comes in, it hooks up to troponin and that actually moves the covering out of the way. Now the little golf clubs on myosin can grab that thin protein, that thin string of protein, and they pull on it and the muscle shortens. And then what happens next, and this is probably the most important part of this. So if you've zoned out, kind of tune back in for a second, um, you need energy in order to release that so that the myosin, the little golf club head can reset and then reattach and pull again. We get energy in the form of a molecule called ATP, adenosine triphosphate. And it's basically the energy currency of just about everything in our body. Um, it creates energy um, basically by donating. So it's adenosine and then there's three phosphate ions on it. It donates one of these phosphates. It kind of cleaves it. The phosphate falls off. So now you have adenosine diphosphate. So adenosine with two phosphates, ADP, and that little phosphate ion kind of gets cleaved off. That creates an energy um, kind of thing that allows the myosin to reset and pull, right? So everything we do in order to function biologically is basically replenishing that ADP to ATP. So we need that ATP to create everything, any sort of action in our body, not just muscle contraction, right? So what what ends up happening is we only have really small stores of actual ATP in our cells, especially our muscle cells. So enough for like a couple seconds um, if you're if you're working at a high percentage, like a high intensity. Um, so what happens is we need some way of replenishing that, a, turning that ADP back into ATP. The first line of defense we have for that is uh, uh, phosphocreatine. So creatine phosphate, um, if you've ever supplemented with creatine, this is the energy system it kind of helps with the most, although there are, are other cool effects with creatine. Um, but basically we have a few, like a little bit longer, like 10 seconds or so. If you're working at the highest intensity, you can of creatine phosphate stores. So creatine donates this phosphate, makes that ADP back into ATP, and then you can continue creating muscle force, right? You can continue creating muscle contraction. Um, and this is where it kind of breaks down a little bit. So like undergrad physiology is going to talk about these three energy systems I'm about to describe as separate things. So you have your phosphocreatine, and then when that runs out, you go to your glycolysis, which is basically the use of glucose, which is a sugar molecule in your body um, to create more ATP. So there's a whole bunch of like molecular things that happen, hand wavy molecular magic. Um, <laughs> and glucose gets turned into a few molecules of ATP. Um, so you can create a without oxygen, right? So this can happen in the absence of oxygen. So if you're working very, very hard and fast um, and you need energy right now, you get this glycolysis happening and you get a little bit more ATP. Um, you also get some metabolic byproducts as a result of that. So you get some phosphate ions kind of fl floating around. Um, 
you get lactate produced if if there's no oxygen available the the glucose eventually turns into lactate um, lactate doesn't actually create fatigue it's useful as a fuel for other other muscle cells um, but it is associated with other metabolic byproducts it's easy to measure and so when lactate rises we can generally say other metabolic byproducts are probably rising too right um, and then what happens after that if you need more energy so whatever several minutes or whatever um, you're going to start to have to use oxygen. So the glucose can then be, it's turned into a molecule called pyruvate or lactate if there's no oxygen. If there is oxygen, it becomes pyruvate. That pyruvate gets sent into your mitochondria, the, the powerhouse of the cell. Everybody knows that one. Um, oxygen is used to create a lot of ATP at that point. So you can get a lot of energy out of a molecule of glucose, way, way more with oxygen than without oxygen. How many, mate? I don't know, like 30-ish. <laughs> so there's, there's debate, like 29 to 32. Right, right. Yeah, somewhere around there. Um, so at that point, you can also start, this is called oxidation, right? So there's oxygen involved. So it's called oxidation of glucose in order to get a lot of energy out of it. You can also oxidize fat. This is called beta oxidation. So this is where most of the energy stores in our body are in your fat molecules. So you might have, I already forgot the numbers, but something like maybe 800 calories worth of glucose available, available in your body, maybe a little bit more up to like, grams of glycogen. Is it? Yeah. So around like 1600. Yeah. Somewhere. Yeah. 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 But even like a really lean person will generally have around like 70 to 80,000 calories worth of fat in their body. Wow. So like a lot, you can't use all that. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, you can, if you starve over a period of several weeks, but not in an athletic activity. Right. Um, the problem is that fat has to be carried. Most fat has to be carried to your cells through your cardiovascular system. It's kind of slow to get there and it requires oxygen to make this, the, um, ATP, but you can get a lot out of it. So what that means is that you can't need a lot of ATP very, very quickly, but if you're doing a very slow sustained activity, you can, um, use fat to sustain that activity forever. So this is stuff like laying down and doing nothing or like, Mm -hmm. um, walking, um, for trained endurance athletes, they can generally go to about 30 to 35% of their, um, maximal energy creation basically and sustain that. So things that are three plus hours, like triathlons, ultra marathons, um, they can basically use fat to sustain about 30, 30 to 35% of their maximal like energy creation, right? Mm -hmm. Um, how much they're capable of using. So now that we've kind of done all that, what basically happens with fatigue is that some of those systems fail and there's probably, and that's peripheral fatigue. So something that happens in your body and then your central nervous system can also help modulate the fatigue. So your central nervous system senses what's going on and it decides to shut things down before you die basically. And so there's actually like a lot of debate about this. It's kind of interesting. So we went, we all went to a, Matt didn't, but we went to a Greg Lehman course. Matt should have come. It's awesome. Oh, yeah. Should've, should've yeah. Um, he's like graduating or something. Yeah. Boards. Something. Um, we went to a course by a physical therapist slash chiropractor named Greg Lehman. Who's a lot into, does a lot in like pain science. He's just a really smart dude. Um, he's Canadian. Too. He is Canadian. Yeah. Kind of, yeah. So he's, I mean, I'm almost Canadian, so I'll, yeah. Pros and cons, yeah. I guess. Yeah. So, <laughs> got to compliment a Canadian. Um, so he, he just mentioned a book called endure, which is actually a really, really good book. So it's almost more like a, it's a very science-based book. It's still like directed towards layman, but it talks a lot about studies and like all this kind of like the history of how we've studied fatigue and all this kind of cool stuff. Um, and so he mentioned it, I decided to listen to it on audible. It was really, really interesting. And I kind of got zoned in on this idea of fatigue and started 
looking into it. And so in the book Endure, they're talking mostly about like these long endurance events, right? It's called Endure. So fatigue as related to like cycling or, or running or that kind of stuff. Um, he, he really subscribes to the notion that all fatigue is basically created by the brain. It's regulated by the brain in response to signals from the body and like conscious decisions, right? So the decision to stop or that kind of thing. Um, in the literature, it is actually a little bit um, more under debate than I think he makes it seem in the book. So basically what we can say is this, these three plus hour um, events, right? So like triathlon, all that ultra marathon stuff is probably task failure. That fatigue is probably decided by your brain. So there's mm-hmm. um, lactate doesn't really rise during that. Um, resting creatine levels don't really change. So phosphocreatine actually stays about the same. Um, metabolic byproducts don't really accumulate that much. So it almost looks like these athletes are at rest when they're doing these three plus hour events. Um, and so task failure isn't really dictated by peripheral fatigue. It's dictated by the brain's decision that the risk is not worth the reward anymore, basically. So, and you can train that, right? There's crazy people like Eve really loves, loves Dave Goggins right now. (laughs) So people that basically train themselves to be okay with pain and be okay with these like really intense activities. Um, and you can, you can kind of train that out so you can go for longer and longer and longer. Um, and circling back around too, cause I kind of forgot to mention this, sorry, it's going to be real. No, it's okay. Back it's, and yeah, forth. Yeah. So what actually happens with these energy systems is they're not as like cut and dry as, as they're mm-hmm. taught in like undergrad physiology. Right. So, um, phosphocreatine is always being used. Um, glycolysis is always happening. Um, fat metabolism, beta oxidation is always happening. All these things are always happening at any given point. But, um, there are, there are different things that lead to fatigue based on these, right? So what'll happen is ADP. So the adenosine diphosphate after ATP has been cleaved into that ADP actually is a really strong signal to start doing beta oxidation, to start using fat as a fuel source and start doing just oxidation in general, right? So it triggers a whole bunch of things in your body that lead to more oxygen being taken in, um, more, more like fat being shuttled to your cells, um, all this kind of stuff like capillaries opening up a little bit more blood flow, all that kind of stuff. So that way you can get more oxygen so you can create longer term energy. Right. Um, the problem is that as ADP rises, ADP concentrations rise. If they rise really quickly, it's because energy is being used really, really quickly. Right. And if energy is being used quick, quickly, that means phosphocreatine stores are going to be dropping rapidly mm-hmm. instead of staying kind of level where, where you can sustain an activity for a long time. When, phosphocreatine is dropping really quickly. When ATP is cleaved, you get hydrogen ions. So you get a metabolic byproduct. When phosphocreatine is dropping rapidly, you're getting just a lot of random like inorganic phosphates. So these phosphate molecules are kind of floating around. Um, Calcium is being released. All these metabolic byproducts are starting to accumulate faster than your cardiovascular system can carry them away. And it starts to interfere a little bit with peripheral muscle contraction. So um, it also sends signals to your central nervous system. So, um, phosphate, so inorganic phosphates and, uh, hydrogen ions are also strong signaling things where they, they can touch on like free nerve endings outside of these muscle cells and they tell your nervous system, Hey, we're starting to, to accumulate metabolic byproducts. Um, you need to do something about this. Your nervous system senses that. And it, it basically makes it harder to get these descending signals going from your brain to your muscles. So like nerves become harder and harder to depolarize. It becomes harder to send those action potentials. Um, so as your peripheral sites start to fatigue, as it becomes 
as it's, as the like hydrogen ions start to interfere with muscle contraction a little bit. So it's harder to produce force. Um, you start recruiting more and more muscle fibers in order to maintain that same amount of force. But the, this accumulation of metabolic byproducts then tells your brain like, Hey, something's happening here. It becomes harder and harder to send those signals to recruit more muscle fibers. And eventually what happens is force can no longer be maintained at that level. And you start to, you see a force drop off and you end up in task failure. Um, and so that all happens probably more in harder activities, right? So almost purely central fatigue with three plus hours events, um, your brain deciding, Hey, I don't want to do this anymore. I mean, maybe your joints are like, you've been slapping your foot into the ground. So pain is almost a driver of this, right? And we've talked about pain before, but it can kind of drive this, this fatigue sensation decision to quit. Um, above the lactate threshold. So when, um, basically metabolic byproducts start accumulating a little bit and you see lactate start to rise, um, these things can generally last between 40 minutes to three hours. So this is a marathon. Um, this is when athletes are running a marathon, if it takes them more than three hours, they, they hit that wall and they bonk, right? They, they run out of glycogen stores just a little bit. Their nervous system starts to sense that depletion of glycogen stores. And it says, Hey, you need to stop this now. And they hit that hard wall. Of like I can't keep running, even though I don't like feel that bad. Um, and it's kind of interesting because if you look at glycogen stores in these athletes that bonk or athletes that reach task failure in this above the lactate threshold activity, um, glycogen doesn't completely deplete. So glycogen is glucose molecules that are like kind of in a storage kind of thing, right? So it's these sugar molecules that we're using for energy. So glycogen supplies don't completely go away. And so something is stopping you from using all the glycogen stores that you have in order to either like stop you from dying. Cause when you run out of glycogen, you can't, it's hard to like continue creating energy for your cells. Um, but what may be happening is that there's an interesting paper looking at glycogen is actually compartmentalized in cells. So there's like different storages in these muscle cells and there's a real specific kind of compartment of glycogen that does deplete. And when that one's depleted, people tend to hit that bonking stage and can't continue. Um, so there's like this built-in safety mechanism in our muscle cells. So what this says is that for these like three hour, 40 minutes to three hour events is that there is still a little bit of central nervous system stuff going on. It's still a little bit dictated by that central nervous system decision to like, I need to go faster. I need to slow down, but it is a little bit more dependent on peripheral fatigue sources. So your actual muscles running out of fuel or, um, basically just running out of fuel is, is and that's where you'll see like say somebody on a marathon video Mm -hmm. stumbling across the finish line kind of like literally their muscles no longer contracting and like having to crawl or or whatever case and this is why we do those sport gels in marathons why we'd like chug gatorade Mm -hmm. in the middle of running right because if you can continue getting fuel sources in you can replenish glycogen stores as you run out of them and you don't run out of that fuel you can keep going for longer um so above that there's something called critical power which is the maximum amount of uh, muscle force, basically the maximum amount of muscle power you can produce, um, at a sustained level. So anything above this is going to be a real short duration activity. So this might be like 400 meter, 800 meter sprint, even like a mile, a real fast mile run. Um, above that, there's even more kind of a critical power, power failure before you hit your VO2 max. And that would be like basically every kind of lifting weights we can think of, or like a hundred meter sprint kind of thing. Um, but these are less than 40 minute events and the accumulation of hydrogen ions and inorganic phosphates starts to interfere more with your muscles being able to contract more with that, like myosin actin kind of excitation contraction coupling. Um, so this is more where, uh, 
even more peripheral fatigue starts to set in. Nervous system has even less of a say about necessarily if you're going to hit the wall here. And something else kind of interesting that happens is your respiratory muscles start to fatigue too. So you start to increase this metabolite accumulation. We get rid of those by breathing them out basically. So they, they get turned into different things, go through our blood, go into our lungs. We breathe it out as CO2. Um, so what ends up happening is there your respiratory muscles have to breathe faster and faster. Your diaphragm starts sucking in harder and harder and all these other inspiratory, expiratory muscles, and they start to experience peripheral fatigue. And there's a certain point at which they're not going to be able to breathe faster and harder. And then you can no longer exchange those metabolic byproducts. Um, and that's going to contribute a little bit to that kind of fatigue. And that's when you're just about hitting VO2 max, which means the maximum amount of oxygen you can uptake and use in your body. Um, and that's generally when, when people are looking at like tests of aerobic performance and stuff, they'll look at VO2 max and look at lactate threshold as kind of these determinants of performance. And if you do Um, a VO2 max test, you can understand that feeling, right? Like you get to the end and like things are almost starting to get like blurry and like, yeah, like you start to hear different, your respiratory rate is super high. And all of a sudden the test is over because you any further and you probably fall. fall. Yeah. 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 It's, it's not a pleasant sensation. That's your, (laughs) that sensory experience is your brain, right? So it's your brain saying like, Hey, you're going to kill yourself. if You keep doing this. I'm going to make it hurt so much. You don't want to anymore. So there's still a little bit of that conscious decision, but what's really interesting about this kind of zone of less than 40 minute, um, uh, activities is that if you uh, there's, there's tests looking at cyclists who are trying to maintain this and um, they do EMG studies on these people, right? So they can sense the electrical potential coming from their nervous system to the muscle. So EMG is sensing the motor neuron, neuron activity, not necessarily the actual muscle activity, right? So they'll reach task failure before the EMG starts to decrease. Like EMG may not even decrease. So they're still telling their muscles, Hey, work as hard as you can. They're still sending all these signals from their brain to keep going, but it's actually, actually that peripheral fatigue that's interfering with muscle contraction that stops them from continuing to perform that task. So, um, in, in trained athletes, at least. So like your, your average show off the street would probably give up before that point. And then you'd see a smaller EMG, right? So like, um, but someone that's well-trained and can train themselves to like tolerate that amount of pain can keep going, even though their power decreases, even though task failure is reached, they're still telling their muscles to work hard. Um, and that's kind of an interesting like area of research and like training for future mm-hmm. endurance athletes. Cause like 40 minutes is still, you know, that's still a pretty long time. That's a 5k, 10k, 5k for me. Probably. Right. Yeah. It's a 10k for like faster people. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So, and then finally you have like, um, above critical power, but failure before you hit your VO2 max, which is like bicep curls to failure. And that's where mm, most of us right. are at. Um, so same basic thing, like you, you get that more peripheral fatigue, a little bit less central fatigue. Sometimes there's, there's some inhibitory stuff coming from your central nervous system, especially with heavy weights. It kind of tells you like, Hey, stop. Um, but most of that is going to be more peripheral fatigue based. So what's really interesting here is CrossFit in relation to all this stuff, because CrossFit is at all these different points at any given time. So it's not just weightlifting where like, you know, you don't even really necessarily fatigue there, right? There's just failure to create enough power to get the bar up. Um, That's not a fatigue point. That's just the muscle isn't powerful enough and there's not enough nervous system drive to get there. And it's not necessarily like powerlifting, same, same kind of idea. CrossFit has those peaks and valleys of like, there's an endurance pace where you're kind of like hanging out and you're, um, trying to recover basically. And then there's these peaks where now I'm lifting a barbell for 
five to 10 reps and now I have to go run 400 meters. Right. And so it's your, you're blasting up into that really high power production where peripheral fatigue becomes really, really, really high. And then you're having to, um, maintain kind of an aerobic pace where your, your peripheral fatigue isn't necessarily the driver, but it's still contributing to that. And so that's kind of the, it's, it's just kind of interesting to think about in relation to CrossFit and how complicated it gets in a, in a sport like that. And probably why yeah. someone like Matt Fraser and Tia Claire Toomey do so well, because somehow they've managed to overcome this peripheral fatigue. And it's not just mental. Like, I mean, yeah, like you can see some of the athletes may not have the best mental game with it, but it's, it's really like finding ways to finding strategies to, um, decrease that peripheral fatigue, whether that's increase like training strategies that result in increased capillarization. So you can remove those uh, metabolic byproducts or um, relying less on creatine phosphates or being able to produce more power with, with uh, slower energy systems, basically. So, yeah. um, well, I mean, and when we look at them, is it more dumb luck? Like, I mean, like is Tia and, and Matt, I imagine they don't have as deep of understanding of what we're talking about right mm-hmm. now to where they're going and looking at that and then going and training accordingly. Yeah. Rather their training program seems to elicit these positive responses and, and mm-hmm. elevates their game be- basically because they're within these systems and, and, and I guess just the undulation of it. Yeah. Like it's almost like they have perfected pacing to where they can hit high yeah, levels yeah. of power and then hit high levels of aerobic capacity, but without yeah. ever redlining at each stage to keep it within mm-hmm. that, you know, to yeah. keep the peripheral fatigue at bay, to keep the, you know, the centralized fatigue at bay, like all of it. Yeah. And that's kind of the, so they, they have this experience of like knowing how their body feels and how much they can keep doing. Right. Like there's, there's parts of your brain that monitor that and then can plan for the future and decide like, okay, I can continue to put out this amount of power for right now and that kind of thing. And you can actually, you can see it in cyclists too, because we think of cycling as a steady state, you're holding a pace, right. But it's not really like you're going up and downhill. You're there's leaders passing you. You're trying to like maintain a pace, maybe pass them at some point, all this kind of stuff. So you're never hold. I mean, at some points you are, but there's, there's a variation in pace and cyclists are actually really, really in tune with like, how much more can I push this before I reach a point of no return? And that's kind of what CrossFit is doing too. It's just in generally shorter durations. Right. Mm -hmm. But it's, it's kind of cool. Just looking like I, I would butcher it trying to name all the brain parts right now. I haven't memorized those. Um, (laughs) But like, it's kind of cool to see like how many parts of your brain come into play, like the monitoring and then planning out actions and deciding what is the risk of this? What's the reward? And like when, when the risk outweighs the reward, like you tend to not be able to complete it, but in a competition, maybe the reward is higher so you can push harder. And that's where that competitive drive comes from. People tend to do better when they're competing uh, or have people screaming at them. Um, Yeah. And there's just a lot of really cool, cool stuff that I haven't fully gotten into yet and i probably already butchered some of what i was talking about but it's fine um so that was a lot of information you know in in regards to fatigue a lot of uh physiology um a lot of science behind that i think we really need to break down kind of what that means to us as athletes um even within therapy all of that kind of tying it in and saying, okay, how do I utilize this information to uh apply to my training or get out of my own head or or whatever the case is Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I, I guess, you know, really looking at it, like, you know, obviously we were talking about hitting that bonk stage in a marathon or a, or a triathlon or whatever, um, peripheral fatigue muscles, basically just giving up because there's nothing more to give. Um, 
where does that fit within our own training? I mean, obviously in the middle of a workout, I get to a stage a lot of times where I just want to go sit on a box and like breathe for a couple yeah. minutes. Like, yeah. what does this mean for my training? So, so in regards to CrossFit, you're probably, unless you're doing the marathon row, you're not going to hit a bunk stage, right? So nothing we do is long enough to get there. What is probably more of what we're dealing with is tolerance, sensory tolerance to, um, those peripheral fatigue mechanisms. So like hydrogen buildup, um, inorganic phosphate buildup starts to interfere with muscle contraction a little bit. And then when they get into the interstitium in between muscle cells, like outside of muscle cells, they get to those free nerve endings and they send signals to your brain to say, Hey, this is happening right now. What do you want to do about this? And that's kind of where that, you know, all the, like Ben Bergeron talks about it, all the really high level crossfitters at this point, like talk about their mental game and like mental training and that kind of stuff. And it's, it's being, it's improving that sensory tolerance to peripheral mechanisms so that you can maximize your performance to that point where the periphery actually, actually fatigues instead of like just giving up before it gets there. Um, which is probably what like Matt Fraser and Rich Froning and T. Claire Toomey are really, really good at. Um, when you see them, like, you know, most of the time they're going to like 80%, they're not trying hard. Like in this last CrossFit games, we saw Matt was behind Noah and it was like two workouts. He just murdered himself, right? Like he, like he was actually breathing hard for the first time ever. Is that, <laughs> is that ability to like, just say, okay, I'm going to be okay with this. And that is pain. So in most of the literature, pain and fatigue are two separate sensory experiences, but pain contributes to fatigue. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just being okay with that pain and being able to tolerate it more and more and more up until the point where your muscles get closer to that, like I can't contract and produce the force anymore is probably where it would help with us. Um, and then also like, steering your training towards being able to improve that kind of stuff. Right. So, um, doing types of things that improve capillarization in the area, um, improve, uh, metabolic byproduct clearance. So it can be something as simple as like doing an endurance paced workout and then like sprinting for about 10 seconds and then going back to that endurance pace and trying to hold that pace, making your, your body clear those metabolites. And then you'll get, um, physiological adaptations that help. So some that. type of interval training. Yeah. In yeah. Sense, right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, that's, uh, that's good. I mean, mm-hmm. those always suck, right? Those are the workouts that are the hardest. Yeah, I don't care what kind morning, of athlete so. you are. When you get into intervals, it's always going to be the, the worst yeah. of, of that. So what we're kind of saying then too, is like, if we're looking and again, this doesn't really matter what type of workout we're talking about, mm-hmm. but if you're, if you're doing the workout and inside that workout, you get that voice inside your head. That's like, man, I feel the, the lactic quote, lactic acid building up yeah. all that metabolic byproduct. Things it's are burning. Yeah, I'm just, breathing hard. <laughs> Um, two things, a, I can probably keep going if I train that, like if Mm -hmm. I, if I, you know, mental toughness, I I might be able to push through and B, my muscles at the very end of the day, I'm going to end up fatiguing to the point of not being able to contract anymore before I were say to do any damage to myself. Yeah. And I think that's when we first started. So like Tim Noakes is the guy that introduced the central governor theory, like maybe the eighties, I can't remember now, but like way, way back, like decades ago. And like, you know, he's, He's got some wonky stuff at this point. Um, he's real deep into ketosis. I just made everyone angry. Um, but like, so, but like the central governor theory is the idea that your brain regulates fatigue. Right. And so his big question was like, 
not that why do some people die doing endurance events? It was why doesn't everybody die doing endurance events? And there's something stopping you from dying. Basically, there's some sort of regulation going on that prevents you from pushing so hard that you create catastrophic metabolic failure. Um, And I think that is still kind of a, like we can do all the debate we want about like peripheral versus central, like that exists. Like most people don't die. Um, Like every so often someone does, but it's it's pretty rare. Um, And especially like at the highest levels of the world, like those people have a lot of reason to push to that point. Like, I mean, the, these like Kenyan runners can make millions of dollars and like just live however they want and like just have awesome, awesome lives. And they're the fastest people in the world and they don't die when they yeah. run, but like they're all trying to beat each other. And so something's stopping them from dying. And I think it's kind of big. Right. Um, well, what we also know too, probably, I mean, when you look at all the elites, I don't care what sport mm-hmm. or activity, when you look at the elites, they aren't the ones that are dying. Right. Like yeah. somebody might die on like a marathon run, yeah. but it's typically somebody in the middle of the pack. And mm-hmm. generally I would say that it's much more in, there's something else physiologically going on with that person yeah. than, than the amount of fatigue or pain that they yeah. entered into. Right. It wasn't their body necessarily yeah. giving up. It was their heart wasn't prepared or like there was something yeah. defective within there. Yeah. System. And I do think too, so that, that brings up a good point of like preparedness for the activity you're doing. Right. And so when we were talking about those like three plus hour events, so like, and we just, our uh, local triathlon coach here, Brad, just walked just in, so in. he can he can tell me I'm being an idiot Thanks, if I'm Brad. wrong. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. Um, but with these three plus hour events, where it is really like that central fatigue that's stopping people, it's that basically it's it's not like a necessarily like a I I'm being a wuss I'm stopping, but it's a decision to stop. There something has happened that makes you decide I don't want to do this anymore. Um, that might be pain. That might be like damage to the periphery of your body. So like if you're if you're uh, body is not ready for this for like pounding on pavement in an ultra marathon, like your bones may not hold up real well. Your tendons and ligaments and all that may start creating so much pain, giving you so much feedback that now you're making that decision to stop. And that's really where we can kind of come in as since we treat so many like triathletes and all that, where we can come in as physical therapists, say, uh, physical therapists and say like, this is how we prepare your body for this kind of stuff beyond just like the training, right? Cause they're already training. They're all right. already running like that. And so that's where these really good training plans come in. This is where a good coach comes in. This might be where like we come in to say like, you need to prepare your body a little bit in this way as well so that you can better tolerate these things that will hold off the sensation of pain because there's, if there's no threat to your body, your brain's probably not going to interpret it as a threat hopefully in the mm-hmm. middle of a race. And so there's less of a reason to make that decision to stop yeah. kind of as you go through it. So does that well, feel, feel right to you, Brad? And I think like, <laughs> even like when we talked about Greg Lehman earlier and like, you know, the analogy of pain with the cup and everything else, like all of that is now playing into fatigue as well. So yep. if my past experience of, I don't care, like maybe as a, as a youth athlete, you know, something happened to where, you know, my experience of fatigue at that time was such that, I'm recreating that moment now as an adult in my training mm-hmm. and I'm taken right back to like, I can't go out and run in 90 degree heat because I'll, I'll get heat stroke automatically. Yep. Or, um, you know, maybe, I don't know if there's something else in your history or your past that emotionally affected you to the point where you're like, I, I like it, it's creating that higher level of fatigue or the mm-hmm. higher level of pain. So you got to manage the emotional yeah. side or the, the experience. And back to earlier too, when like Matt was talking about the environment of like working out in Travis Mesh's gym, like that's maybe someone hasn't worked out an environment like that before. They don't know what's possible or they put their own self-imposed limits on. They have their beliefs that like, this is, this is about what I can do right now. And then they walk into this environment. They're like, Oh my God, these people are 
monstrous, you know, and like that's part of the, one of the really good things about the internet too, I think is I can see those people deadlifting 600 for reps and be like, this is possible at my body weight. And like, maybe I should work towards this instead of being like, oh, I just deadlifted this. And that's probably about as good as it gets. And so there's, there's these, and you know, if you go all the way back, Ender talks a lot about this, but like Roger Bannister's four minute mile. And then like people started breaking it after that. And it's not quite as dramatic as like, we tend to like 30 people didn't break in the next year, right? Like it's, it was a bit slower of a process and there's still not that many people that have, that have broken it repeatedly. Um, but like once we know it's possible, then, then people tend to do better. They tend to perform better. And it is that little bit of like a mental limit we might put on ourselves. Um, like, yeah, you, and like you were saying, that makes your, that makes your cup smaller. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Definitely. There was uh, just like within the last little, I guess, couple days, maybe even, and I, I might be mistaken at the actual time frame, but uh, 100 mile world record. Did you all see? Oh, yeah, that? I did see that. Oh, like averaging yeah. like 627 pace for 100 miles. Yeah. Um, That's crazy. You know, the stuff like that just blows my mind, you know, like just mm-hmm. the, 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 the amount of sheer effort and will that it must take to, to do that. And then mm-hmm. how did he not hit that peripheral fatigue? Like, I can't yeah. run a six minute well, so 800 meters, like, let alone. So that's another thing. Um, really interesting. Some of these, so just getting into the, the bushes a bit, some of these studies are done on um, rattlesnake shakers. Did you say get into the bushes? I yeah, know, I don't know what that talking means. Talking about rattlesnakes. Yeah, weeds yeah. and yeah. bushes. Yeah, get in the weeds. That's what I meant. Maybe the bushes. <laughs> um, so a lot of these studies on, like, the, the mechanisms of peripheral fatigue are done on rattlesnake shakers because they um, have really, really high capillarization and – you can just like turn them on and they can go for, for, it's really cool. Right. I think it's whatever guys. So part of it is that the bigger a muscle fiber is the harder it is to diffuse um, metabolic byproducts and oxygen in and out. Right. And so it just takes longer. So like this guy running 627 miles for a hundred miles probably isn't real big, right? Mm-hmm. Like he's got a really high um, ratio of capillarization and blood flow to the surface area of his muscles. And so that helps a lot. Plus like, I mean, dudes, dudes probably trains like a crazy person. Right. So like he's, he's got that mental, like I can do this. Um, and it's just like, he, he has a really, really high capacity before he starts hitting that lactate threshold and metabolic byproducts start accumulating. So like a hundred miles, he's below that lactate threshold for most of it, probably. Right. Like maybe he bumps up above it every so often, but like something that long, he can't be above the lactate threshold for that long. Right. But he just manages to produce a lot of force and a lot of power below that before he starts hitting it. So like, he probably couldn't deadlift very much. Right. Like he's not going to have a whole lot of like fast contracting muscle fibers and all that kind of thing, but he can do something incredible um, because he can produce so much force with kind of these like slower acting energy systems and Mm -hmm. kind of these non-fatiguing muscle fibers. Um, Yeah. And I think we see that with a lot of like iron Mm -hmm. athletes or, uh, you know, David Goggins, who you mentioned earlier, who's a freak. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know, just overcoming fatigue and overcoming pain to, to accomplish a task is something Mm -hmm. that I think that uh, it's a, it's, it's crazy. It's kind of scary if you really start to think yeah, about it. That's like, a really cool idea. Yeah. I'm into it. Deep into it right now. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Um, yeah, I don't know. Anybody else got uh, anything to add to, to the fatigue discussion? Brad, anything cool? Well, I missed the first part, so I don't know how much y'all cover. You touched on a little bit the mental game, but the 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 impact that mental fatigue can also have on physical fatigue. Mm-hmm. Um, particularly over time and over endurance events. Um, and then also something came to mind when you were talking before, particularly in endurance events or when intervals came into it, 
um, is the idea of, of active recovery and being able to actively recover when you reach that point. Okay, pull back, body reacts, body recovers, and then rebuilding back into into the activity. I think all those those things come in very big on on longer distance endurance events or multi sport events. Um, you know, people often ask, "Well, geez, how am I going to do this on the bike?" and then you know, transition and go run. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it has to do with the, the, the difference physiologically in those two activities, but also the transition and you're, you're really almost actively recovering into a different, um, into a different, uh, sort of state, both mentally and physically, um, to help you endure that. And, and on the, I hadn't heard about the hundred mile record being broken, but one of the things that came to mind when you were talking about that is, the current um, <clears throat> youth athlete development model that's being implemented by most of the U.S. Olympic uh, governing bodies, um, <clears throat> and myself and one other coach went and got uh, trained as, as elite youth and junior triathlon coaches and were exposed to this. And when you look at some of the records that are being broken over long distance, ultras or, or Ironmans, um, you know, just from the outside, you think, how is this possible? Right. This is particularly in the last few years, there's been some crazy jumps in, in Ironman times and particularly at the top. And what you learn is that is that, you know, they're coming through a pipeline where they're being trained very specifically from a young age, not overbearing such that they burn out and don't continue mm-hmm. with the sport level. Sport is a huge component. I think yeah. it's also a huge component yeah. and staving off fatigue is that yeah, you actually you like want to be out there doing yeah. it. You yeah. love it even when it hurts. Um, but, uh, you know, they're taught to run fast. They're taught to break that four minute mile at a young age. Mm. And if you put that kind of into the body, into the mind, Mm. then getting people to run longer, faster happens later in life um, through proper training. And that's really why we're seeing all these things happen to a lot, you know, whereas, Traditionally, if you look at youth running, you know, and, and you probably see it as PTs, you know, oh, I ran in college, now I can't run anymore type of stuff. And yeah. there's just like this this over, like, oh, you're going to run 100 miles a week at 17 years old, and that's how you're going to get fast at 5K cross country. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, it's I don't know, it never really yeah. made sense to me, but, you know, the, the new models are, are really steering people away from that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, training speed and then training endurance later. Later yeah, in yeah. life, and later in life, I mean, we're talking like nineteen, twenty, right, yeah. twenty-one, right? Yeah. Now, when you get old, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the, uh, so, oh, I was just going to say, but I think there's also, you know, when we talk about pain and we talk about some of those fatigue things, you're, you're getting taught that and to deal with that through that high intensity speed training at a young age, and then when you're shifting mm-hmm. to endurance, it's it's different, but that that pain, fatigue, all those responses almost seem less intense, I think. Yeah, yeah that threshold less, goes yeah. up for where you experience right. pain. And- so we were talking about the deconditioned athlete versus, like, you mm-hmm. know, the, the, the training age you have. The longer that or the higher that training age, the more likely you are going to be able to push through those feelings yeah. or you're going to understand that response um, and, and be able to, to handle it accordingly. Another one came to mind was that Iron Cowboy on yeah. uh, Netflix. You yeah. know, 50, what was it, 50 mm-hmm. Ironman? In, one in every state for one 50 in every days. One in every state for yeah. 50 days. And you saw within that, the fatigue set in. Like, yeah, I'm going to... He hated himself. Like Basically, I quit. Yeah. And then it was like... Stopped. 
And what it was, it had nothing to do with physiologically what allowed him to continue. It was like his mental component of saying, like, I don't want my daughter to see me fail or like to see me quit. You know, like it's yeah. just very much like, no, I'm just going to go ahead and push. And as soon as that was the case, pushed. Yeah. And he also, I mean, due to sleeping like four or five hours a night and there's, it's kind of interesting. So sleep deprivation doesn't necessarily acutely decrease performance, but like longer term sleep deprivation makes you feel more pain and sensitizes you to more things. And it fills that cup up more. And then you're more like, especially with these long, it's a, it's a long event, right? Like it's, it's the decision to stop. It makes it easier to decide. Yeah. So didn't we talk about that with dehydration as well? There was a component of that in there or. Yeah. So dehydration may not, I mean, you have to be pretty dehydrated to really limit performance. So it's not, I mean, there's, there's debate back and forth. And again, like Tim Noakes is kind of on the far periphery, um, but he kind of popularized the like drink when you're thirsty, which actually works really well for most athletes. Um, but it's not necessarily the dehydration that slows people down. It's the sensation of overheating. And so if you can separate those two things out and in most studies, like, feeling overheated comes with being dehydrated. But if you can, there's a few studies that can separate these things out and it's more that sensation of being hot that really screws with performance. And so it's that sensory input makes you decide, okay, I'm done and I'm stopping. Even though like it may or may not necessarily change, change the physiology, physiology of what's happening, especially if you're well hydrated, but that's so a little, little slight thing. That's why hot yoga is so hard, man. Cause like, <laughs> You're not, I mean, so a lot of it is hard, right? Like, don't want to, I'm going to make yeah, all the yeah. yogis angry at me too. Yeah, no, I um, mean, we love yoga. Yeah, I love we yoga. We all do yoga. Yeah, I don't do it well. Yeah, I don't do it well. But, like, that's in a hot environment, like, you feel as if you're working much harder than you actually are. You feel as if you're expending more energy than you are, and you feel as if you can't continue as long as you actually could. And so that's what makes it so much harder. It increases the perceived exertion. Um, yeah. And it makes it easier to decide, okay, I want to stop. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I think uh, we uh, beat fatigue. Yeah. Bad. Sorry. Awesome. No, awesome. no, Mass like falling asleep. No, no. I, <laughs> I appreciate Brad for yeah. uh, stopping in for the last yeah. uh, little guest appearance there. But um, do this again. I think, yeah, I, we'll probably dive into this again as we learn more and, um, you know, probably even do another one on pain. I don't know that we've dived in completely on pain mm -hmm. within the podcast world yet so uh you know yeah we, uh, yeah have we not i don't know i, I did on we'll go back and look uh, look back and, and and take a look we yeah. talk about it a lot so it might feel yeah. like we did but mm -hmm. uh anyway no spitfire questions today matt great to introduce you to everybody thanks for hanging out and uh you know thanks so so much for listening to the healthy charleston podcast don't forget educate yourself empower others take care of your body you only get one